Have your Bibles, why don't you join me in the letter of 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you do need a Bible while we're turning there, if you slip your hand up, the men in the aisles have some copies of Scripture so you can follow along as we study God's Word this morning. On Sunday mornings we've been going through 1 Peter. Last Sunday we made our way down as far as verse 16. So we'll pick up right where we left off in the first chapter there in verse 17, and we're going to go down this morning as far as verse 21. And if you're turned there, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as I read our passage of scripture this morning? 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 17. Peter says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And Father, we just humbly ask for your help this morning to be able to understand the word of God, to hear your voice speaking to our hearts. Thank you for giving us, Lord, your word to speak to us and to instruct us. And thank you, Lord, how when we open it and with faith we come to it, that, Lord, we can hear you presently and personally speaking directly to our hearts. So, Lord, we ask this morning that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but that each of us could experience that demonstration of your spirit and the power of God speaking to our hearts. Lord, prepare us accordingly And we ask you would bless your word that we might hear you speak what you spoke it for originally and that you would minister to us personally. And we ask these things expectantly in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Do you ever find in your life that on occasion you lack motivation? Motivation is basically kind of that stimulus or influence or maybe incentive that typically causes us to act. Uh, And it could be all types of different things. And I think the same applies spiritually, that sometimes I know myself, I can find that I can even lack motivation in regards to my relationship with the Lord. I can lack motivation in regards to uh, my spiritual response to God. Well, our passage this morning speaks to us about motivation, and I think particularly motivation for living a holy life. That's what I sense that the Spirit of God is saying to us as we study these verses together this morning, that sometimes we need God's prompting, and I think this is a good reminder in what we look at, to have motivation to live a holy life. Remember our background as we're in this section this morning, last week together, Peter has just began giving to us now a series of exhortations of how we can live responsively to God's salvation in our lives. He talked a great deal about God's salvation, the benefits of it, how it happens in our lives, uh, the process of God's salvation. And now Peter is beginning to get practical and to give a series of exhortations as we move on, telling us, look, as a result of being saved, if truly you've been born again and you're now a child of God, there should be a responsiveness that comes forth from that in our lives. And last time we saw that Peter began to show us that that as a result of God's salvation, that God's salvation should influence our minds, that our perspective should be different, that we have a new perspective now once we become a child of God, and, and our thoughts 
should be under the control of God. And, and there in verse 13, he talked about how at times we need to gird up the loins of our mind. And we talked about that's the idea there of, of how as a Christian, we now have the ability to have self-control by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And sometimes we have to take control of our thoughts so they don't encumber us and trip us up. And, and I would encourage you even this morning, if maybe you weren't here last week, because I know the mind is a battleground for so many people uh, that you might consider listening to that message online and some of the aspects of especially verse 13 how there is a real battle and struggle in all of our lives sometimes with our thoughts and our minds and how that can really trip us up uh, and how outlook in our lives so many times affects the way we behave and what we do and and, and Peter told us, look, as a result of being a Christian now and a child of God, it should have a direct influence on our mind, upon our perspective, the fact that we're sober and our hope is upon eternal things rather than earthly things. He then talked as well about how as a result of salvation, it should also not only influence our minds, but it should also impact our conduct. And he talked there in our verses last week of how now as a Christian... I should have a life that is marked by things like obedience to God, where before that I wasn't living obedient to God, but now I live a life obedient to God as well, that I should have a life in my conduct that is marked by transformation and change from my past. That if I'm truly a Christian now, it should be evidenced by the fact that I don't live the way I once lived. I'm no longer conforming to my prior lusts and passions and the way I once lived. There's a marked difference in my life. And one of the clear indications that something has happened regarding God's salvation is that I'm changing. I'm being transformed. I'm not the same person that I once was. And that's because there's a new work that's taken place in me. Just like a child is born and they have a brand new life. When you're born again, you're a new creation. And change and transformation is evident. Peter left off verse 15 and 16 saying, As he who called you is holy, then you also now be holy in your conduct. He said, verse 16, because it's written, Be holy for I am holy. And Peter now is going to continue expressing some proper motivation for holy living as a child of God. That's why verse 17, he then continues our text this morning. And if you, he says, call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Notice one of the motivations or one of the motivators for a child of God to live a holy life in response to God's salvation, Peter says in verse 17, is understanding that we have a loving father, yes, but that loving father is also an impartial and righteous judge. And that should be a motivator to live a holy life. That because our loving Father is also at the same time an impartial, righteous judge, that should cause us to desire his approval and at the same time to fear his disapproval and to fear his discipline in our lives. And here I think we begin to find the Christian balance between privilege and responsibility. Yes, we are privileged to call God our Father. And that is an incredible privilege. That when you come to Jesus Christ as Savior and you are born again spiritually and you become a child of God, your relationship with God changes. You go from having God as your Creator to having God as your Father. And God now begins to relate to you as a child. And you now have this intimate child-father relationship with God where he allows you to have this privileged position of knowing him as a father in this close, intimate way where you experience his fatherly acceptance in your life. And, and you can approach God with a sense of ease and comfortability. He's not this austere, aloof king that you're terrified by, but he is your loving father. And you can approach him as a child and come to him in that close, intimate way. And that's an incredible privilege. That's what Peter's saying when he says, our father, in the prior verse he talked about how we're children. He says, yes, we call upon God as our father. And that's an incredible privilege. Yet, 
Though we have that privilege, at the same time yet, we are still responsible for our conduct, Peter says, throughout the time of our stay here on this earth. He says, our father, verse 17, look at the text. He says, also this same father without partiality judges each one according to his work. In other words, Peter's reminding us that even though we have been spared, praise the Lord, from the eternal judgment that we do deserve for our sins that we commit, we are still accountable for how we walk and the way we work out our salvation once we come to Jesus Christ. That is our Christian conduct via a life of holiness and obedience to God. Remember in our study in the book of Philippians that we went through recently, there in chapter 2, Paul told us that after experiencing salvation, he says after we experience salvation, we must then, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So again, he says here, our heavenly father, verse 17, Peter says, he judges according to each one's work he judges or the term could also be translated evaluates or assesses now please understand here pay attention peter is speaking to christians he's talking to believers the children of god so he here is not referring to god judging us in regards to our eternal destiny in other words this is not a matter of whether or not we qualify for entrance into heaven or hell that's not what peter's referencing here when he uses the term judge uh, such as what will happen with the unsaved or the unconverted person at the great white throne judgment the bible speaks about in the book of revelation where there the unconverted person the unsaved individual the bible teaches will appear before the great white throne judgment after death and stand in the presence of God and when their name is not found written in the book of life God keeps accurate records when their name is not found written in the book of life because of the fact that they did not sincerely know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and never received him in a sincere way as a result of that, God as a righteous judge at that moment will righteously judge and punish that individual, whoever has not received Jesus Christ because their name is not in the book of life. The Bible says they will then at the great white throne judgment be cast into the lake of fire where torment never ever ceases. And let me just say this, for the unconverted person, that is a judgment that they should fear and it is a judgment if that's your case this morning you must escape and peter tells us exactly how to escape that so that's good news if that's you this morning it's a judgment you should fear and it's a judgment that you must escape and peter says it's very easy to escape because god's made a way through his son jesus christ now for the christian through our personal faith and our faith alone not that we merit or deserve anything we're as sinful as every other human being on this planet. We understand that. But for the Christian, through our personal faith in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross and his shed blood for our sins, in receiving by faith Jesus himself as our Savior and his work that he accomplished for us personally, it is through that we are released and spared from that coming eternal judgment that we should have deserved. Jesus said in John chapter 5, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me, in him who sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So I want you to understand, don't misinterpret. Peter's not talking about the word judge here in the sense of our eternal destiny. Peter here is talking to the child of God and he uses the word judge there in verse 17 in the sense of God reviewing or God evaluating, making a judgment like a judge that would watch a boxing match. Again, he, he views and evaluates what takes place and as a result, he then makes his judgment. The idea here is to view or to evaluate. God evaluates our spiritual works as a child of God upon earth and he then responds to them accordingly in our lives. In a sense, two ways Peter could be seeking to apply this. First of all, he's probably thinking about how God as our 
Father, which is what he just says, God as our Father has the right to discipline us accordingly as his children. That is a part of the parental process. If and when needed in the child-raising process, God may judge our behavior requires some discipline. And sometimes that's a part of being a child of God. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this in verses 7 through 11. Let me read it to you. It says this, If you endure chastening, this is to the child of God, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have all had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of our spirits and live? For indeed, they for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness now, no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, the Bible teaches that God, as our father in this parent-child relationship, because he is a good father, he is a perfect and a righteous father. You know, some parents and some fathers, they want to be their children's friends rather than be their parents. So they never make a judgment that determines, hey, you need to be disciplined. You need to be corrected. You, you need to be spanked on your rear end. God help me, I just said that in church, in public. I know it's not politically correct, but you need, you need a correction right now. You need discipline. The Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction drives it far from them and as a parent sometimes you have to make a judgment you have to judge and determine through consequences and in some way to chasten to drive wrong behavior out of your children and as a parent you make that loving wise judgment on occasion and it's intended to help not to harm it's intended to help in a measured way in the love of a parent you know it's abusive it's not talking about abuse the idea is is just healthy judgment a healthy judging in a sense that needs to be implemented in a way whereby you correct behavior so that they might mature and you might produce better character in them. And God does that in our lives. One of the clear indications that you are a child of God is if you begin to do things wrong after you're saved, you can't get away with it anymore. <laughs> you always find the Lord somehow giving you, and oh man, Lord, hey, praise the Lord. That means at least you belong to him because he won't let you get away with it anymore. Now he chastises in a sense. He corrects you. He convicts your heart or he lets the circumstance come about to teach you not to do that again. And, and, it, and it's a correcting. It's a training process that God brings about. I think Peter as well, as he says, the father of our spirits judges us according to each one's work. He's probably also thinking about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible speaks about, where every Christian, the Bible says, will experience one day in the presence of the Lord in the afterlife, a moment when we do stand before the Lord at what the Bible speaks of as the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 14 says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul as well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, speaks of it this way. Listen to what he says. Therefore we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive, listen, the things done while in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, the Bible teaches that there is a bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ that even the Christian, different than the great white throne judgment, that's for the unsaved. That deals with eternal destiny and damnation. The, the, the judgment seat of Christ is a time of receiving reward and the Lord, like a sports judge, evaluating how we ran our race as a Christian. And the Bible teaches that how we live out our Christian life after we're saved, it will be evaluated. And that's where the picture came from as Paul was writing about that. As they would run the races, there were those who, who sat as the judges to observe in the Olympic competitions. And then afterwards, they would reward accordingly based upon your performance and how well you did or how well you didn't do. And you would receive rewards accordingly. 
And this is the same idea that Jesus, one day we're going to stand before him after our life here on this earth is over and all that we did or did not do in our walk with the Lord or our works for the Lord, it will be evaluated and judged and it will result in either eternal reward or eternal loss if we were negligent and just lived a carnal Christian life or, or, or we really didn't seek to really serve the Lord faithfully. Our works, the way we walk with the Lord and the works we do for the Lord, that is going to be either rewarded for great gain or for great loss in our lives. Listen to how Paul describes the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, Each one's work will become clear, for that day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he's built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So again, this idea, what we've done for the Lord since we've become a Christian is going to be put through the, the, the testing of, of the fires of the judgment seat of Christ and based upon what our motives were and, and what we did for the Lord and didn't do, it says we're going to find out whether it was genuine or whether it was just wood, hay, and stubble and will be rewarded accordingly, the Bible tells us. And see, this realization that we will be evaluated for either eternal reward or eternal loss, and that's going to affect our eternal experience and position, that should motivate us to aim, Paul says, to please the Lord, to want to live an obedient Christian life, to want to serve the Lord passionately, to be productive for his kingdom, and, and to live holy, and, and not to backslide and to abuse God's grace. It should cause us to want to live holy and pleasing to him. And he says, verse 17, that, that God's judging of each of our works, he says as well, please don't miss verse 17, he says, is without partiality. I think that's important. God's evaluation is going to be without partiality. It means equal in evaluation that he assesses all that we do without any favoritism, that with God there is no special treatment, there are no exceptions made, there are no opportunities, despite who you are on this earth, to have any special exceptions or somehow to, to be given a special perk or a privilege because of who you are. Peter learned himself in Acts chapter 10, he said prior to this, that God shows partiality to no man. Again, the idea being is before God, every soul is completely equal and treated fairly. God never looks down upon anyone. Maybe people look down on you in this life. Listen, God never looks down on anyone. In the same way, guess what? God is not impressed with anyone. So maybe lots of people are impressed with you in this life. I hate to break your heart this morning. God's not impressed. He's not any more impressed with you because of who you are or what you have or what you've done or what you can do than he is with anyone else. He's God. He's not impressed. At the same time, he never looks down his nose as if someone's less important or less significant because of what they don't have or what they can't do. God is impartial. God is completely fair. He shows partiality to no one. And when he assesses and evaluates for gain or loss, it happens without partiality and without the slightest measure of favoritism. Now, this morning, that should do two things. It should be an encouragement in one sense, and it should be a warning in another sense. The fact that God is completely impartial should be an encouragement because God will never overlook anything that you do faithfully. Listen, I understand maybe you're here this morning and you're a home mommy, and that's tough in this world because our world doesn't value or give credit to that anymore. And, and, and you faithfully work in ways that no one sees all day long, managing a home and changing stinky diapers and dealing with a fussy baby, and, and, and your husband gets to go to work and talk to rational human beings. You understand what I'm saying? And, and here you are faithfully working in that sphere and nobody sees what you do. Listen, God sees what you do. God absolutely sees what you do. And he will fairly and without any partiality 
reward you for what you faithfully do in the same way he is the person out in the world doing this God is totally fair and he never overlooks anything that you do he sees everything that's wonderful it's a great encouragement no matter what you do God will never overlook what you've done if no one else knows he does in the same way the fact that God does not show partiality is a warning because it rules out in all of our lives something very important, and that is this. It rules out the excuses and justifications we like to supply sometimes for our entitlement to do wrong things. And we can all very easily sometimes think that somehow we're entitled to behave a certain way that's wrong. Well, because I'm, therefore I have, or you know, because of this or because of what I've been through, I, I, and almost somehow we convince ourselves we have an entitlement to behave wrong. Or we convince ourselves we have an entitlement to act inappropriately. Listen, God sees through all that smokescreen. And, and, and God says, no, look, I don't give any partiality. Just because of who you are or what title you have, you don't get any special partiality. I'm going to be impartial with everybody. It's level ground before the Lord. So it's a warning to our lives as well to be careful to think somehow God's going to give to us, again, some, some special exception. We're going to get the exception because everybody else gives us exceptions. Well, God's an impartial judge. God's completely fair in all his dealings. And that's why Peter says, verse 17, because of that, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Again, remaining conscious of the fear of God remaining conscious that we're just here temporarily throughout the time of our stay and he's going to hold us accountable and that should motivate us because our father is a loving father but a righteous judge that should motivate us to always seek to live godly and to seek to honor him with holy living verse 18 peter goes on saying as well knowing that you were not he says redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but here's what we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot so here Peter shows I think another motivator for holy living and that motivator here is appreciation genuine appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ which has liberated our soul from slavery and bondage to sin and self so that instead we can be freed to serve God in the way that he intended us to. Peter here referring to the salvation experience speaks of it via this illustration he says in verse 18 of knowing, look what the text says, knowing that you were redeemed. Now, being redeemed was a concept in the, in the minds of the people in that culture that they would relate to very easily. Because in the ancient culture, among the Roman Empire, slavery was extremely common in the ancient world. There were millions of slaves who were under total control of their master, and a slave had no rights at all. They were property. They had no rights whatsoever. They were completely under the dominion and the rulership of their master. And the only possible opportunity for a slave's liberation was if someone was A, willing to, and B, had the resources to be able to pay your redemption and set you free. That was the only possible chance that a slave had to be liberated was if someone provided redemption for you. Redemption is basically the process of making a payment of a set price in order to grant freedom or liberty to a slave. So to redeem, in simplified forms, is to set free by paying a required price. To redeem is to set free by paying the required price. Price. And a gracious person could pay your ransom price and grant you freedom. But listen, that cost had to be paid. And it usually was very expensive. But if that cost was not paid, that person would never receive their freedom. It is only if that redemption cost was paid that then they could be released from the control of the rulership of their master as a slave. And Peter here illustrates how Jesus Christ came to this earth, listen, to properly redeem us spiritually.
from our condition that all of us are in. And he speaks of it here, how we might be set free and referring to our spiritual redemption or being redeemed, Peter reminds us in these verses of two things about our past before we became Christians and experienced God's redemption, both what the condition we were in and had to be redeemed from, as well as what price had to be paid in order for our redemption to be experienced. First of all, take note, what the condition we were in that we had to be redeemed from. The condition we had to be redeemed from was enslavement and aimless living. Let's talk for a minute about enslavement. Regarding our spiritual enslavement, again, the very term redeemed implies slavery. The word redeemed implies enslavement, that you are being ruled over. And the Bible teaches very clearly that before a person is saved and experiences God's salvation through Jesus Christ, that we are all enslaved to sin and enslaved to the power of Satan who's behind sin. Now, whether you believe that or not, whether you were conscious of that or not, whether you're currently conscious of that, that's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't know if before I was saved and knew Jesus Christ, I would admit that I was enslaved, but I was. And I look back in hindsight and I realize now that I was. The Bible teaches that we are all enslaved to sin. Romans 6 declares three times that we were all slaves of sin. Jesus' very words in John 8, 34, Jesus himself said this to you and I, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Do you hear what Jesus said? Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Well, let me validate what Jesus said there because Romans chapter three in the Bible also tells us that we all sin. Now, there's a foregone conclusion there. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. The Bible also says, there's no difference. We all sin, every one of us. So what happens is we're born sinners. And as we begin to commit sin, we just come more under the control of our sinful nature. And ultimately, we become enslaved to sin's power that dominates and controls our life. And we become a slave to sin. Again, if you look up the word slave, it refers to one who is held in servitude by another or completely subservient to a dominating influence. And that describes the spiritual relationship of any person apart from knowing Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Ephesians 2 says, We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just as others. In other words, apart from the deliverance and freedom that comes on the day we experience the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, life is dominated by the power and influence of sin. The unsaved person is controlled. They are inwardly controlled by their own appetites, by their carnal sinful desires, by their selfish ways. It is a life of bondage whether they can see the chains or not. It is a life of internal incarceration to your own internal sinward nature that rules over you from within and despite how hard you try, you can't get free. I remember the experience. I remember being there. Despite how hard you may look, I got, man, this struggle, this inward struggle that I see and I'm dealing with in my soul or, or this habit, this life-dominating habit or this condition I'm in. And we long to be set free. We long to be liberated and we can. We can't liberate ourselves. We can try five-step processes. We can go to therapy. We can do all, and we try to liberate ourselves. We make self-resolve. Um, that's it. I'm not going to, I'm one, two, three. I'm going to count. And we try everything under the sun. And there is that frustration in us because it leaves people feeling helpless and honestly sometimes hopeless because they cannot liberate themselves. They are trapped and powerless to change and they can't gain freedom over the condition 
that they know that they are under control of in their own life. And it may be many different things for many different people, but generically it's that sin nature, our propensity to be sinful that is ruling over us and we're enslaved. And the application you need to understand, the thing that Jesus wants us to discover and embrace is his redemption that he has provided is something that he wants us to experience so that we might experience spiritual deliverance. What did Jesus say? He declared this confidently, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you have tried to get free, you have tried to set yourself free many times over from something or from many things. Listen, Jesus says, but if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is deliverance that Jesus provides in his redemption from that spiritual slavery in our soul. And describing life prior to salvation, notice Peter describes it in verse 18 by saying we were redeemed from our aimless conduct that we got from our past. Our aimless conduct. That picture is what life we were rescued from. Our life prior to coming to Jesus Christ was characterized, Peter says, by aimless conduct. Your translation may say futile living or an empty way of life. Aimless conduct. The idea the Bible is trying to say is our life really had no aim. Our life was, we sincerely had no real purpose other than just kind of survival and getting by and self-indulgence. We weren't aiming at any real significant target until we came to Jesus Christ. We were just kind of as an unsaved person existing here and doing what every other creature on the planet does. We were just trying to get by. We were indulging momentary pleasures when we had the opportunity. We were, were just trying to survive, just to endure life and to make the best that we can down on this difficult earth with all of its challenges. And the word aimless just simply implies what? Lacking direction. When you say that person is aimless, it means that they don't really have any sense of purpose or direction in their life. That characterizes a life apart from following Jesus Christ. It's an aimless life. It's a life really without any direction. Interesting, when you look at the word that Peter uses there, aimless, in the original language, it implies the idea of an unsuccessful effort to attain something. I think it's interesting that he used that word to describe their aimless conduct, an unsuccessful effort to attain something. See, the life prior to being saved by Jesus Christ, really, it fails to attain, hear me, the purpose for which God created us. And the purpose for which God created you and created me was to have a fulfilling, meaningful relationship with God. That's what we were created for. So if we're not experiencing that, though we may be going 100 miles an hour, though we may be accomplishing all kinds of things under the sun, in a sense, there's that futile feeling inside that there's this unsuccessful effort that I'm still not attaining something. And the reason why is I'm not attaining the primary thing I'm supposed to attain during my time on this planet as someone that God created. Life apart from the Lord, no matter how good, it always has a constant sense of failure to it. And I can tell you, I remember this so clearly in my life, that internal nagging experience, and I have talked to so many people and heard the same recurring, that internal nagging feeling within of like no matter how good life could be or what you could do or what you could indulge or what you could try or all that you had and, and you could create a pretty good life for yourself here on this earth, there was still that internal nagging feeling within that I'm not succeeding still. Why am I so empty still? I mean, and we can have, you know, reservoirs of self-indulgence and resources and, and every human accolade and experience on those, and there's still that sense within of, oh, I still, why am I so empty still? What is missing? 
What, what is lacking? Why does it still feel the quality of life is off target still and I'm still missing and it seems pointless? It feels so pointless. Well, listen, that's the whole point. That conscience that God built inside of us that causes us to realize that there's a God-shaped void in our lives. And guess what it's in the shape of? It's not a square. It's not a circle. It's a cross. And it can only be fulfilled by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to die on the cross to forgive our sins and become a personal Savior and Lord to us. And if you're saved this morning, can I encourage you, as Peter says here, to remember that's what God saved us out of. That aimless, purposeless emptiness. That's what we were redeemed and saved. He set us free from that. Praise the Lord that he set us free. Everything else, may, oh, life's really difficult now, but man, it's way better than what we were doing before we were saved. Way better than that internal emptiness and aimlessness and purposelessness. God set us free from that. And if you are here this morning and you're not yet following Jesus and you sense this emptiness, this futility, this frustration, listen, can I encourage you this morning? Jesus can put you on target. All you got to do is say, Jesus, I want you as a part of my life. I don't want to just know about you. I'm ready to know you. Come into my life. Be a personal part of my life. And watch how quickly you go from being aimless to the Lord will give you an aim and a target. And then you'll know why you're living. You're living to follow Jesus and to serve the Lord. And life becomes vastly different at that point. Secondly, Peter also speaks in this section of what we were redeemed with. And that answers the question, what was the necessary ransom price that had to be paid to set us free? Well, he tells us, first of all, what it was not. He says it was not, we were not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says, like silver or gold. That's, that was not sufficient, Peter tells us. What he's showing us here is even the greatest amounts of gold and silver were not enough to purchase anyone's salvation. The most costly things on this earth the value of all the earthly gifts and offerings, those things are never sufficient because the cost of liberating a soul eternally and spiritually was so high it could not be paid by corruptible human things or payments from men. Again, Jesus declared this, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, on this earth, men exchange things with one another for all kinds of things. And very easily, it's amazing, if the amount is enough, you can give exchange to somebody in money for almost anything. But see, that doesn't work with God. Our soul is too valuable. Our sin debt was too huge. Jesus said, what can you give as a human being in exchange for your soul? It tells us in the psalm, Psalm 49, the redemption of their souls is costly. Hear me this morning. Salvation cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It cannot be paid for through any human resource or any effort. Not even the most valuable, costly resources of all the silver and gold on the planet would be sufficient to pay the terms of the debt of our sin before God. It's insufficient. It requires something of far greater value and worth. And what it required, notice, was the very life and shed blood of God's only Son. And God in His love was willing, despite the debt of sin that we had, to intervene and to pay off the debt for us. Jesus said this in Mark 10, The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. And that's why Peter is saying to us here, as just a man who has saved himself, who deeply appreciated the forgiveness in his own soul from Jesus, that's why Peter says, Listen, we know, we must know, that we were not redeemed with anything we offered God. But he says we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That's what we were redeemed with. That word precious speaks of priceless, of great value and worth. That precious blood of Jesus from heaven's estimation, its worth far supersedes all the gold and all the silver on this entire planet. And the reason is twofold. First of all, because what it cost 
the Father and what it costs the Son. That's why it's valuable. And it's also precious and priceless and valuable because it also cleanses us from our sin. 1 John chapter 1 says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 1 tells us this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Please listen this morning. The blood of Jesus Christ is so valuable and we must, we must have a proper appreciation and a continual reverence for the blood of Jesus Christ. Some churches nowadays don't even want to say blood. Oh, that sounds gory. Yes, it is gory. And it is essential because there is no other way we could be forgiven than the shed blood of the death sacrificially of Jesus Christ. That's why songs which enclose great doctrinal truths of things like, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But by the same token, because of Jesus' blood, listen this morning, no matter what you have done, what failure, what thing that guilty conscience of yours eats you up over. Listen, there's nothing you have done that Jesus' blood cannot wash you clean from. I don't care if it was an abortion. I don't care if you murdered someone. I don't care if you've lied grievously, if you've cheated on your spouse. I don't care what you, there's nothing you have done that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse you from because of its potency and the priceless, valuable impact that it has Peter, wanting to describe that blood further, says it was the blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, the Bible taught us in the Old Testament without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And I think Peter here is probably thinking of those Old Testament Passover lambs that were offered for the sins of people in the sacrificial system. And if you remember, those lambs that were offered as the sacrifice, they had to be inspected by the priests as to whether or not they were acceptable in their offering. And they could not have defects upon them if they'd be sacrificed for sin. So that sacrificial life and blood that would be shed when the lamb was brought to the altar to make atonement for sin, it had to have a purity in its, in its nature to be accepted for their forgiveness. And the New Testament tells us, 1 Corinthians 5, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. John, the apostle, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Peter here, speaking of Jesus as that lamb to take away our sin, he says it was the blood of a lamb without blemish or spot. A spot was an inherited defect. A blemish was an acquired defect. And what Peter is speaking of here is how Jesus as the Lamb of God, he had no inherent defects and he had no acquired defects. He's speaking of the essential doctrinal truth of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.15, Jesus was in all points tempted but without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says he knew no sin. 1 John 3, in Jesus there was no sin. And Peter himself will say in chapter 2, Jesus committed no sin. See, the sinless life of Jesus Christ was essential to our salvation so that the blood would be acceptable to forgive our sins. He had no inherent defects. Jesus was born of a virgin. God was his father. The life of God was conceived in the womb of a virgin woman so that the sin nature would not be passed on to Jesus Christ as it spread throughout all the rest of humanity. He had no inherent sin and Jesus lived perfectly, sinlessly. He never failed in thought, word, and deed in a way that you and I could never do. And that's why what Jesus did in his sinless life is so precious and important because Jesus, to make proper atonement, he had to be like us in humanity but he had to be removed from us in our sinfulness and Jesus came as God and man simultaneously God becoming flesh he lived the sinless life that none of us can ever live and therefore had the pure perfect blood that could pay the ransom for our life 
and to pay the debt of our sin to set us free, to liberate us from sin's penalty and from sin's power. So John says he was indeed foreordained, verse 20, before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say, but was manifest in these last times for you. So Peter here speaks of the origin and fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. First, he speaks of Jesus' appointment. He says Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The idea is that it was always in the heart of God and it was always understood in the person of Jesus before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever created. The Bible says Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God always knew what it would require and God did not hold back. And listen, your salvation was not an afterthought. Jesus' coming was not God as an afterthought saying, oh my, a plan's gone bad. I better come up with an idea. No, God the Father always understood and Jesus was always aware what it would cost, but in the depth of love for you and I, the plan was established and Jesus kept the appointment because it says he was manifest in these last times for you. So Jesus knew what needed to be accomplished and it says at the set time in these last times, Jesus accomplished what needed to be done in coming as the Lamb of God to make redemption for you and I. And again, this to me is an amazing thing to consider that Jesus kept that appointment knowing what he was going to have to endure, that he would come to this earth and all that he would experience, can I just say that is the greatest appointment anybody has ever kept. And I'm really glad that he came and he kept that appointment. In his love for you and I, he was manifest for you. The Bible says he was manifested for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. And not only did Jesus liberate us from the devil's dominion and power and reveal God to us and show us the way to have a relationship with him, verse 21 concludes saying that through him now that you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So notice, Jesus didn't just liberate us from sin's power and rulership, but he revealed to us who God was as he came in the flesh and he showed us and gave us the way to have relationship with God because it says that because he so satisfied the work of redemption that was required God the Father it says gave him glory he raised him from the dead and the idea is through his resurrection and his ascension and seating him back at the right hand of the Father the Father said I accept what my son has done and he glorified him now as Lord of all. And now the Bible says it is through him, through Jesus, that we all believe in God. In other words, everything we experience from God, it comes directly through the person of Jesus. That's why Jesus in John 17 declared, This is eternal life, Father, that they may know you and the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen, to know God requires knowing Jesus. To know God requires knowing Jesus. The Father sent him as an extension of himself so that we would be able to believe in God and have our faith and hope where it needs to be. And Jesus' life provides that ability to know God personally and be saved from sin's penalty and to be able to have a life of living as a servant of God. And I think Peter's reminding us of this very simple truth. Listen, you have been set free. You have been set free. Never forget what you've been set free from. And you have been set free not to live selfishly for yourself, but to now serve the Lord with all your heart in gratitude.